Oh, giant builders, today is a tough topic. We're going to talk about money, planning, retirement, and marriage. Let's get to it. Building spirituality, family, health, and business. This is the Giant Builders with Lois Wyant. Hey, Giant Builders, it's two o'clock either Tuesday or Thursday, and here we are. So today's guest is Jonathan Granick. Hi, Jonathan, how are you? Hey, Lois, thanks for having me on. No, it's a pleasure. So tell us a little bit about yourself, please. So I'm out of San Diego, California, and I am uh, an adventure lover, a travel junkie, uh, and a financial planner. And uh, I really love helping people live their best lives and, and not letting money get in the way of that. Oh, yeah, that's a that's a big green thing that just prevents us from doing things, isn't it? It is. It is. Oh, it's funny. Uh, I think of money as a mirror and how you behave around money uh, allows it to be a tool in your life or a hindrance or a big weight around your ankles. So it's really all how you perceive it and, and behave around it. So how should we behave around money? Oh, wow. How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, we can double up on the taping here. So <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, man. Well, behavior, I like to say, is 80% of personal finance. So people think of personal finance as like, oh, you know, the hot stock tip and uh, the latest this and the latest that. And what's the trend in Bitcoin? 80% um, of personal finance is behavior. Only 20% is head knowledge. People usually flip-flop that or they assume it's flip-flopped. But the way you behave around money is everything. If you can be consistent with saving at a healthy clip and beha uh, behave in a healthy way around your spending and keeping tabs on things and staying organized, that behavior goes a long way. The challenge is behavior is not logical. It's not black and white. We as human beings are onions. There's multiple layers to who we are. Our history with how we were brought up around money, how our parents handled money. These all shape who we are and how we interact with money. So, oh, there's, there's just so much to say on the behavioral piece. And, and it absolutely bleeds over from personal finance into psychology, into therapy, into the, you know, we as human beings are not robots, right? So it's not, we're not spreadsheets. Things may make sense on a spreadsheet, but human beings, you have to meet them where they're at. I think a big piece of behavior and money is giving yourself grace. There's a lot of, um, a lot of shame, a lot of embarrassment when it comes to money, a lot of triggers and a lot of limiting beliefs around money. So overcoming those and finding a way to educate yourself, empower yourself, but still be kind to yourself in along the way, those all are, just play huge roles um, in having a healthier relationship around money. Tell me, where did your relationship with money begin? I mean, did your parents teach you this process? No, they did not. <laughs> they are amazing human beings, but they are just not money-minded. You know, I don't even hold that against them. Their parents' generation grew up where a pension covered you. Your company and the government in the form of Social Security covered you. Their parents never had to think about this stuff. 
So they were raised in a world where they were not taught how to really deal with money. So your parents can't give you what they never had. So I don't hold that against them. They're amazing people, kind, just not money-minded. So from watching their challenges, their battles, the impact it had on all the other areas of their life too, I saw that and I said, I want better. I want better for myself and my own children one day. So that was what ultimately motivated it was just seeing how they behaved around money and the impact it had on their lives in all the other ways. I did a previous interview with an author of Shocking Marriage, and he said that finances is a number one issue for marriages. How can we improve that talk, if you will? Yes, yes. That's a great question. Um, It is leading cause of divorce in, in the States or, you know, especially in the States where money is I think, more of a focal point. But how can we improve marriages? So communication is number one. Now, here's the challenge. It requires self-awareness. It requires self-awareness of how you behave around money. If you're not super aware of how you behave around money, how your parents behaved around money and how, how their behavior shaped you, um, you know, you can't really communicate where you're at if you don't fully know where you're at. The reason why, and people in the audience may be listening, be like, Jonathan, I know who I am. I know myself. Well, money is one of the easiest things to avoid. It's awkward. It's taboo. It brings up a lot of emotions that usually aren't good, like fear, limiting beliefs, hopelessness. So people avoid talking about money and they avoid thinking about money in many, many instances. There's also the flip side of that where people think about money way too much. And there's, it's a very unhealthy balance where they're losing sleep at night, always worrying about not having enough. So I like to look at it in two ways. I love talking to couples around money. Why? I find this. Usually one spouse has a scarcity mindset around money and one spouse has an abundance mindset around money. So what are those? A scarcity mindset is this feeling of I'll I'll never have enough. There's not enough money. I'll never have enough. You're always frantic, always anxious, always need more, don't want to spend. And I grew up with a scarcity mindset. Where does that come from? Well, let's say the husband grew up in a household under a single mother and they are all scraping by, always scraping by month to month. They can never get ahead. Well, guess what? That husband is going to cling to every dollar he can and he's going to be terrified of spending money. Let's say the wife grew up in a household that was maybe more well off in a country club setting. Money was never a concern and it was never talked about. It was just always there. She's not going to worry so much about spending because the money had always been in there in her life experience to this point. And, you know, that's just they're coming from two completely different angles around money, two different experiences. So she may spend on X, Y and Z and the husband gets triggered by it, but he doesn't understand himself well enough to explain with love why he's triggered. He just knows that he's triggered and he doesn't know why. And he's very fearful. He doesn't know why. So he's not able to communicate it clearly because the self-awareness is not there. What does that evolve into? I'm pissed. I'm going to bring up these issues. And then we butt heads. And, you know, that can evolve into, that can evolve into divorce if it's not addressed in a healthy way. So as a financial planner, I love helping couples navigate this topic 
in a healthy way, structuring the conversation, guiding the conversation, derailing it. If you notice they start pointing fingers, that's never a healthy way to have a conversation around money as a couple. It's saying, you know, talk about it in the sense of we, how can we do better? What can we do differently? Talking as if you're on the same team. Yeah, there's a lot to it. And helping people unpack that is, is very rewarding. And I find insightful. You think married couples, you think they've been married for years. They must know so much about each other. And they do in a lot of ways. But a lot of times money is not one of those areas. They actually know their partner as well as they'd like to. So, so let's talk about um, procrastinating with money. The biggest financial sin, procrastinating with money. It is... Uh, how is it harmful? I like. There's a quote I like to share. The cost of inaction, actually, it's, uh, I forget the exact quote, but it comes down to the fact that the cost of inaction is actually greater than the cost of action. We're deathly afraid of making a mistake, so we don't do anything. But by not doing anything, by avoiding, that's actually your greatest mistake of all. I have a personal story. It's, it's, it's my why for why I became a financial planner. My parents are my why. I love them to death and I do anything for them. But they made many financial mistakes. Again, they don't know what they don't know. And there was no one there to kind of show them a better path. But my mom, there's one mistake out of many that they made. But one mistake she made that cost them $600,000. You're probably thinking, wow, what the hell is that? <laughs> well, the $600,000 mistake was insanely subtle, small, and easily overlooked. But when made at an early age, it blossoms into something very large over the course of your life. So what was that mistake? At 32, my mom was burnt out on her job at the government. She was one of the highest paid women in the government at the time in the in early 70s. She had uh, basically a retirement plan there with $15,000 in it. Well, she said, I'm done with this government job. I'm going to cash my 401k out and I'm going to go into nursing school and I'm going to use the 401k to pay for nursing school. Well, she cashed the 401k out. She paid penalties. She paid tax on that. So that was not ideal. And she didn't have anyone to intervene in these decisions to say, hey, it'd actually be smarter if you took out a loan and left your 401k alone. Well, she didn't, and there was no one there to intervene, and she didn't know what she didn't know. So she cashed out the 401k, paid for nursing school. Here we are today. Well, if she had left that $15,000 401k alone, it would be worth $600,000 today, if she had just invested it in the S&P 500, which is the US stock market, if she just left it alone. That's where it would be today. Now, fast forward to where my parents are now. They are living paycheck to paycheck on social security. They are scraping by. My mom has a very small nest egg and then the equity in their home. And that's it. And then, and then they have me, their son, as backup. And, and I can tell you that has brought many years of stress and pressure on my shoulders. And I don't resent them for it. I love them all the same. Again, they don't know what they don't know. But there is a reverberation of the mistakes and the choices we make in our lifetime have a trickle-down effect on those we love. So, yeah, I think... Uh, you know, that's, that's the story is small, subtle mistakes that you don't even know are mistakes in the time we're making. And over the course of so many decades, they really 
blow up into to big things. So, so in your um, information that I received, you mentioned something called passion income. Mm-hmm. So can you talk to me about that and why it beats fire? Yeah, yeah, I'd love to. Well, a lot of people, yeah, will shift gears from like just starting out with money, getting into a healthier mindset around money. That's so important. Just a starting point. Having a better relationship with money is where you start. Having a better way of viewing money and thinking about money is a better way to start. Psychology of Money is actually a very good book for getting a better The Psychology of Money by Morgan Housel. I recommend it to all your listeners to getting a better mindset around money. Now, for those a little more advanced in their financial journey who are saving and they want to, you know, they want to create more freedom in their life with the money they have saved. Uh, they've got good awareness of themselves financially and they're saving at a healthy clip and they want to retire early. That's what's cool about money. One of the things I love about money is that it is a tool to use in whatever way you please. So for many people, money is a path to freedom, greater freedom, greater options, living a life with options, not limitations. Well, for those who want more options in life, they may be in a job that they're making great money, but they want to get out of. It's stressing them out. It's sucking the soul out of them. You know, it's not what they truly enjoy. Or maybe, maybe it's actually just okay. And it's death by a thousand days at this job that's just okay. And it's not really your highest calling. Well, for many of those people, they like the idea of passion income. There's also folks that like the idea of fire, financially independent, retire early. Some of these people in the fire movement, you can Google this, the fire movement, they will retire at like 30, 35, 40. Like there's ways to make it happen. And and that's great. You're, You're creating so many options. If you can quit your job at this time, by this age, wow, how many options do you have that your money's afforded you? But the challenge I have with the, the issue I have with fire is, okay, well, what are you retiring to? The idea of retiring and not having to work sounds great. Well, when you're given, you know, idle, idle minds is, the, you know, devil's playground is an idle mind. You want to retire to something. So this is why I love the idea of passion income. I think work is good for you. Structure, being challenged is good for you. That's where passion income comes in. I created a financial plan recently for a client. He's 40. He's got his own business, but he's like, Jonathan, I don't love this. It's okay. It's doable. But in 10 years, by the time I'm 50, I want to be able to make $20,000 a year doing whatever the hell I want, something I love, something I'm passionate about, and I only need to make 20 grand a year. How do we make that happen? Well, I was able to crunch numbers for him and say, all right, well, if you earn this much per year and you're able to save this much and you're able to save to these accounts invested in this way, By the time you're 50, the numbers support the idea that you can shift into a place of passion income where you're doing what you love and you're passionate about and you only need to make 20 grand a year in that instance. So it's not always more. People's default is thinking, oh, when it comes to money, it's more, more, more. What I did with him was I said, how much is enough? When you can define how much is enough, There's a whole world of possibility there. People don't define how much is enough. And when you don't define how much is enough, your default is more, more money, more money, more money. So, you know, it's it's finding a balance. 
and not working too many years too hard to, we, I think we're all familiar with that story of like the retiree who worked their butt off and didn't spend enough time with family and loved ones to make all this money. And then they die at the end of the day, they're on their deathbed. Or I wish I didn't work so much because they got maybe a million dollars in the bank that they never even used in their lifetime. So it's finding a balance between life and the money side of things. Before I started recording, we were talking about a five pillar system. Pillars intrigue me because we're based on four pillars. So talk to me a little bit about your five pillars. Sure, sure. So the five pillars, yeah, it's it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, if anybody in the audience is familiar with that. What Maslow's hierarchy of needs is, is essentially how our, our brain works. We have our most basic needs, your physiological needs on the bottom of the pyramid, like air, water, food, shelter. That's the most basic needs. And all the way up to the top, which is self-actualization, being the most that you can be. And there's areas. So the first layer is physiological needs, air, water, food, and shelter. The second layer is safety needs, personal security, feeling safe, being financially provided for, being healthy. The third layer is love and belonging, friendship, intimacy, family, connection. The fourth layer is esteem, being respected, having status, recognition, freedom. And then the fifth layer is self-actualization, becoming all that you can be, the most that you can be. And usually what that entails is giving back, starting a charity, impacting the world for the better, making the world a better place, giving back to others. It's less self-focused and more being the best you can be to change the world. So where does money tie into Maslow's hierarchy of needs? Well, if you are struggling with money, see, the bottom two layers are the most important. When you're living paycheck to pay, this is literally how our brains are wired. When you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're not fully providing for the first two layers, you don't feel safe. You don't feel financially secure. Your brain literally cannot think about esteem, respect, love and belonging. You can't think about it in the same way because you got to fill your own cup before you can be there for others. Well, being there for others, relationships, that's what life's about, the most beautiful thing about life. But if you're not filling up your own cup because your finances are in a mess, then you're not able to reach those higher levels of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Your brain literally can't focus on them. What I do as a financial planner is I help people secure those bottom two layers. Let's get your financial situation sorted to where you feel a sense of safety security in the future and you feel provided for we run the numbers to show you'll be provided for when you feel that peace of mind around the financial side of your life that allows your brain to shift gears into the higher levels of being your best self uh, which is love and belonging connection your career purpose and and self-actualization which is giving back to the world and you know being there for others so does that make sense is that a helpful that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, that's really great. Give me another tip here. How is it that you're flying without pain? Oh, yeah, I um, I'm big into travel hacking is what they call it. So it's leveraging credit card rewards to fly for free. Now, here's my disclaimer as a financial planner. <laughs> if you don't have a healthy relationship with credit cards or debts, um, you know, that's the biggest thing. If you are in a position, 
I only suggest this idea for those who are able to pay off their credit cards in full every month at the end of the month. If you're in a place where you have credit card debt lingering over from month to month, I do not want to dig you deeper into a hole. So that's my disclaimer up front. But for those who have a healthy relationship, they're able to pay their credit cards off at the end of every month. Well, there are a lot of credit card rewards out there with sign-up bonuses and things like that that you can take advantage of to build points. So I'm sure everyone out there is probably pretty familiar with this, but you can go through and have open up different credit cards to build up certain rewards. And literally the, the power there is, is it's, it's very, um, it's incredible if you use them in the right way. I have not paid for a flight since 2017 in credit card rewards are the reason why. I've never allowed myself to let a carry card, car, uh, excuse me, credit card balance carry over from month to month. I always pay it off at the end of the month. People have a lot of fears of, well, if I open up multiple credit cards and, you know, I use them to build rewards, well, there's going to be an issue with like my credit score is going to fall. You want your credit score to be in a good place. If you don't have a great credit score, again, this isn't a strategy for you at this juncture. But if you do have a strong credit score, you pay off your credit cards at the month, at the end of the month, you can leverage, you know, sign up bonuses on these credit cards to build up a lot of, a lot of points and be able to travel the world for free or cheap. Well, tell me, how do you help people as a financial planner? Yeah, absolutely. Oh gosh, it's 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 way deeper than dollars and cents. Oh, you're the investments guy. You're you're the you're 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 watching the stock market, right? Like, what's the latest hot stock? Like, tell me about tax deductions and things like that. Uh, financial planning talks on the numbers, but financial planning. How do I help people as a financial planner? I help them get out of their own way first. So this is behavioral. This touches on psychology, behavior, what's their vision for their life. We talk about these things before I ever talk about what are the numbers, what are the dollars and cents, what are the investments. So yeah, the first thing I do is I ask them open-ended questions about their history with money. How have they approached money? How's their spouse approach money? How do their parents approach money? I learn the backstory of who they are and how they're programmed before I ever make a recommendation around money. And I'm just gonna, short little quip here. I think we've all been to that family gathering where your uncle, uh, you know, means the best and he's telling you to do this financial thing. If This is the challenge. Most people go to friends and family for financial advice. Friends and family, more often than not, are well-meaning, well-meaning but equally lost, I think, in, in a lot of ways. Maybe they read the newspaper more than you do about the stock market. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're in a position to give you good advice. What people do is they don't take the time to get to know who you are and what you're trying to do with your life. They just say, oh, this worked for me. You should do it too, which is a terrible foundation for giving advice to someone. So just be mindful of that. If friends and family start giving you advice before they learn your backstory and who you are and why you're doing what you're doing. So that's what I do. I start the conversation off with who are you? What got you here? How do you think about money? What are your limiting beliefs and triggers around money? Learning the human being, the human side of money first. And I say, all right, what does money even mean to you? That, that answer, that question, the answer I get, it, it differs wildly. You know, generally people will say freedom. Well, what does freedom mean to you? 
Somebody says, freedom is the ability to stay in the job I'm doing now until I'm 65. For some people, they're like, I want to get the hell out of this job. I want to work in a nonprofit and I want to make X income. So digging into what is freedom, that's way too vague of an answer. So I help people take vague ideas and create goals. What are your goals with your money? Most people don't actually know how to answer that question. They just, I just don't want to feel stressed about it. I just want peace of mind. That's usually where people are coming from. All right, well, let's define it. When I ask people, what are their goals? See, the challenge is goals are vague unless they can be quantified. I help people quantify goals. They say, oh, my goal of my money is to feel more freedom. Okay, well, how do you quantify freedom? Well, you quantify freedom by saying, well, okay, freedom actually to me means being able to retire at 40, living on X amount per year. Okay, now we have something we can plan around. So getting something from this vague idea in your head down onto paper that can be quantified, like SMART goals, specific, measurable, you know. So I help people create goals that are measurable. Once we create the goals, then we back into, okay, what are the numbers to make this happen? But it doesn't really end there because they may tell me, they tell me a lot about themselves and they tell me this is a goal, but sometimes they say, I want to do X with my money, but they say, I want to do Y with my life. Sometimes they contradict themselves. So I'm able to point out those contradictions between what they want to do with their money and how they're actually going about in their life. People say they have an intention for their life, but a lot of times their actions around money do not back up those intentions. That's very common. So actions are not in alignment with their intentions for life. Their actions around money. What is that? That's the behavior gap. There's a gap in behavior. See, we as human beings are not robots. We're not fully logical at all times as much as we like to think. I say I want this for my life, but a lot of times emotions are more powerful than logic. Anyways, yeah, so I'm going to pull myself back in. I feel myself going down a rabbit hole with that. You know, so what I as a financial planner do is I help people overcome the behavior gap. They say I want X for my life. I hold them accountable to taking the right actions to get them to that intention creating a life that inspires them, that excites them, that's filled with travel, a home, love, a family. I don't want money to get in the way of that. I want money to be used as a tool to launch them closer to that. There's so much nuance there. Human beings are onions and unpacking so many layers, especially when you have spouses, double that complexity. I help people unpack that stuff and then come up with an actionable plan of, this is how much we're saving to this account every month, this is what we're investing in. And then we have a big pot of money. We're going to use this chunk for that. We're going to use this chunk for that and getting organized. And I help people prioritize goals too. People get, they stress themselves out. They're like, oh, I want to buy a home, but I also want to save for retirement. But I also need a new car. But we also have to put the kid in school. Holy crap, my head is like spread thin right now. I don't know where to start. So I help them prioritize what's first, one foot in front of the other. So they don't go crazy. So at a high level, I help them get organized and create a plan of action so they don't get lost in all the, the nuance and ambiguity An actionable, clear plan of action. So is there a certain age that people should start with a planner? Yeah, that's a great question. I encourage folks. So when is it right to work with a financial planner? Not everybody's in a spot where they 
should, you know, it makes sense to work with a financial planner. If you're in a spot where you are living month to month, you're heavily in debt and you're living month to month and you're scraping by, but you feel like, okay, my spending habits are out of whack. I encourage you to work with a financial coach. Financial coaches focus on the behavior piece and they get you out of this cycle of living month to month, scraping by. And when you get to a place where there is excess to plan with, you've been able to save, or let's say you have a, you know, a high income and you have extra money at the end of the month, but you don't know what to do with it. That's where a financial planner comes in. They help you plan with the excess. So if you're scraping by month to month, consider talking to a financial coach. But if you're in a place where there is access to plan with, a financial planner is a good person to speak with that can help you think big picture on what to do with it. As far as an age, I actually work with folks in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. I specialize. People by default think, oh, financial planners, like you help people in retirement or about to retire. I want to kill that narrative. If my mom had been working with a financial planner at 31, when she made that $600,000 mistake, guess what? She wouldn't have made that $600,000 mistake. So actually, if you can write the ship in an earlier age, your greatest asset is time. And if you can make smart decisions now, you have decades of compounding benefits for making those smart decisions now. So very passionate about it. It's yes. never really too, thing. <laughs> yeah, earlier the better, really, when it comes to anything financial. Yeah. So what's the best way to get in touch with you? Yeah, you can reach out to me. Wonderwealthfp.com is my website. Uh, maybe you can link it in the show notes oh, uh, for the yeah, listeners. Yeah, yeah p- please reach out. I love helping people. I love pushing people forward. The core, the real reason I got into this business is to help people more than anything. So if you're in a position where you're lost with your money and you want some direction, some guidance, uh, please, I'll be a resource for you. Go to my website. There's an intro meeting link on the contact tab of my website. Pick a time off my calendar, set up a 30 minute call, and I'm happy to chat with you and help move you forward. And if we're a fit together, great. We can explore that. Uh, If we're not a fit, then I'll push you in the right direction towards someone who might be a better fit for you to help, you know, help you get the help that, that you need and that you're looking for to help support you in this journey. I think it's amazing when people acknowledge that, okay, I'm not handling my money in a way that I feel good about. I want to empower you to, to take action and get the help you need. So is there a state requirement with financial planners? Like you can only work with people in your own state or is it open to the whole country? Great question. I work with folks all over the country. There are like rules around being licensed in that state and Uh, But there's a de minimis rule. You can have up to five clients in any state. So without boring you with all that stuff. Yeah, I work with folks all over the country. (laughs) Okay, great. That's good to know. All right. Mm -hmm. Any closing thoughts? You know, I would say procrastination around money is the biggest financial sin. So if you're in a place where money has stressed you out to the point where you avoid it, because we have enough stressors in our life, we don't want to deal with money. It's another thing. Uh, It's one of the easiest things to kick the can down the road because the cost of inaction is subtle. The cost of action is obvious. I go through this conversation with folks who want to work with me. The cost of working with me up front is is scary or the cost of doing any action is scary up front because it's obvious, it's known. But the cost of inaction is actually vastly larger. I've 
time and time again. What you're not doing, you can't see up front. It's subtle, but it's a vastly larger cost in the long term. So I encourage you to choose to overcome this idea of procrastination around money. Starting points for doing that would be, it doesn't have to be just talking to a financial planner. That is one way to do it, but you can also reach out. There's great resources out there. The Psychology of Money is a great book by Morgan Housel. I talked about it before. That's a really great book to start with, to just open your mind up to these financial concepts. The Millionaire Next Door is another great book as well. So I encourage you, there's podcasts out there on financial topics as well. So I encourage you to just educate yourself and the more your money's scary for a lot of people, but if you start reading about these concepts in a book, each little step you take to familiarize yourself and think about it a little bit more, it becomes a little less scary each time. So fear and procrastination are your biggest enemies, not making the wrong choice, so to speak. It's another way to look at it, at least. No, oh, that's good. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much. That was just so much information. I am just really glad that we had this time together. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me on, Lois. I appreciate it. I really enjoyed it. All right, Giant Builders. We'll see you next time. Remember, Tuesdays and Thursdays at 2 o'clock. Don't miss us. Thank you for listening. This has been The Giant Builders with Lois Wyant.